You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Inside Healthcare, NCQA's podcast. I'm Lawrence Green. Today, NCQA President Peggy O'Kane talks with Dr. Adrian Mims, NCQA board member and healthcare provider specializing in family medicine and geriatrics at GenCare Senior Medical Center in Georgia. Let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Adrian Mims. Uh, you're one of our new board members, and um, you have. I, I would like to start by just asking you about your career and your background because you have been such a leader in the medical community, and um, now you've returned to your roots of, you know, practice. And so I think you have an unbelievable perspective and that's on top of a very thoughtful person. So I'm just so grateful that you're willing to do this today. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you this morning. And I really appreciate being part of the NCQA board. This is a pleasure to be so. I'm a family medicine geriatrician combined. Having grown up in Washington, DC, went to medical school at Stanford and did a rotating internship in Oakland. When I finished my family medicine residency in Los Angeles at Martin Luther King Hospital, I went on to do a geriatric fellowship at UCLA. And during that fellowship, I realized that it would be helpful to have more of a background in epidemiology. So I did a primary care medicine research fellowship and got a master's in public health. I went on to join Kaiser Permanente in Atlanta And it's been a wonderful journey as I was with them for 17 years, developing a geriatric program and at the same time, starting in the road of quality um, as in the role of chief of prevention, health promotion and research. I worked with our team to become NCQA accredited um, back in 1994 and to begin to use the HEDIS measures for quality to improve what we were doing with our patient care at the time. Um, I left Kaiser Permanente and went into medical administration for 12 years, serving as the vice president and chief medical officer for Medicare quality for Georgia and North Carolina. But my love is patient care. And as a geriatrician, I was very excited to be able to come back to patient care. And I have done so earlier this year and it's been such a joy. So that's my background. Yeah, you certainly picked an interesting time to come back into primary care. And I really kind of want to uh, get you to reflect on some of the themes that I think uh, COVID has uh, illuminated for all of us. Um, you know, I think I know that you've long been aware of uh, disparities in outcome for racial subpopulations and uh, ethnic subpopulations. And I want to get you to reflect on that. How about we start with that? And, um, you know, I'm going to be asking you what we should be doing. Um, you may know that NCQA has been active in in the discussion and has a program on multicultural health care um, that uh, I, I, we're very proud of. We've d- we used to do awards um, for people that were doing breakthroughs, and there were breakthroughs. But... Um, there hasn't been the consistency of of uh, interest and of the you know kind of the larger policy community to drive 
towards closing those gaps, I would say. I think COVID has really riveted the attention of the public and the policy sector on, on the problem. And I think we're all looking at like, how are we gonna do this better? You know, our efforts to date really have not paid off. So I'd like you to start with that. I'd be happy to. And it's really good timing because the company I chose to align with and go back into clinical practice believes that this is an important population to provide a high quality care with. And as a geriatrician, I carefully chose who I wanted to work with, those who were more value-based, and believed in treating the whole person. And so at um, GenMed or GenCare that I'm working with in, in Georgia, the population that we serve are those who are Medicare or Medicare Medicaid combined, who are in medical deserts. That is people who are very, very low income, often are, are low in education, have a lot of comorbidities. But we provide more wraparound care. And I, I felt that as a, a geriatrician, we needed to go beyond just the medical aspects, but really understand the social aspects that the patients are living in. And right, right when I started, COVID hit. And so we found that the patients that we were caring for with medical conditions suddenly were not just in medical deserts, but they were also in food deserts. They were in transportation deserts. And to be with a company that we chose to mobilize around that and do food drives, find out where the local pantries were, and make sure that our patients got food, because food is medicine. I think that that's very important. And I think that um, some of the aspects of providing care to uh, populations, especially minority populations who are in underserved areas, we have to think beyond just their diagnosis of hypertension or diabetes. If we just try to get to accurate numbers and prescription of certain medications, we will lose the big picture of what's happening in their life. This either raising their blood pressure or causing their diabetes to be not well controlled. And so we have to understand what those barriers are and treat them like people and find out what they are and become um, aware of ways to address those needs. So, uh, you know, I think there's so much research on um, how to motivate people who have chronic conditions. And I wonder what your secret is. Um, you know, uh, you know, there's all this motivational interviewing. There's kind of like a, there's a science around it, but I think there's an art as well. And I just love to have you talk about both the art and the science. Would love to and have to start with the art because the art is a relationship. And I believe in building a strong relationships with my patient as people from the beginning. So I don't really start the conversation about, um, so what is your blood sugar, what medications you're on? I first ask permission to ask background information from them. I want to know, do they live with anyone and what type of living situation they have? Is it a household apartment? How many people are in the household? Do they have to negotiate stairs to get to their bedroom? That's important to know. I want to know, are they working, disabled, or retired? Because that gives me more information about what their life trajectory has been and what age did they make their most recent transition? 
Um, do they have sons or daughters? And how are they spending their leisure time? So I'm getting to know who they are as a person first before I begin to ask them of their medical concerns and their medical conditions. Because I may later learn that they have diabetes, but if I first learned that they're living in an apartment, a one-bedroom apartment with seven people, and that they are disabled and have low income, my um, understanding of their challenges of getting their blood pressure control would be different than the person who's living alone in a house where they are mowing their own yard and growing um, food in their, their garden in the backyard. So I think that that's very important that I get that background information um, from them first. And when we say motivational interviewing, this is a outstanding technique that has not been well known to clinicians for a very long time. It's actually new to my um, experience in the last um, couple of years. But what it is, is understanding the patient's motivation for the decisions that they make. And the technique that I like most to use from it is reflecting back. And so we as clinicians long remember encounters when the patient is talking at length about a concern that they have. And we usually say, yes, but, or go on to the next subject. And the patient is very frustrated and continues. However, with motivational interviewing, a lovely technique that works very well is to summarize what they just said and reflect it back. So I understand you have three medications you're trying to take a day for just your blood pressure and several for your diabetes. And that is very confusing and you're tired of taking medications and wish that it was simplified. They say, yes, that's what I meant. And once they say that, they, they know and can trust that you have heard them. Then you have to go forward and reflect the fact that you've heard them in your ongoing dialogue. But with motivational interviewing, you are respecting them as a person. You're respecting that they have a opinion um, and that they have true life experiences that should be part of the discussion, as opposed to having the hierarchy of a physician-patient um, um, interaction. And I've been able to use that a lot <laughs> during this time of COVID. That's fantastic. So let's talk about electronic medical records for a minute and the documentation, because this is something that we hear a lot about and, you know, as the president of a quality organization, we particularly hear about how uh, how much time physicians and, and other practitioners are spending documenting things. So I wonder if you could just talk about that for a minute, um, um, please. You know, I can well remember in the early 90s when we hand wrote all of our notes. I'm glad those days are gone because returning back to clinical practice, um, some of the patients where I'm practicing have been around in the practice that long. And I see some of those handwritten notes that are totally illegible. So we went to electronic health records to make sure that we can communicate our thoughts from one patient to another and then back to ourselves when we next see them. But as clinicians, there's a lot that we do that's rep repetitive and we need to learn how to use templates more accurately and more efficiently. 
And so younger physicians who have grown up in the electronic era, they're very savvy with the keyboard and comfortable using documentation to, um, to, as a tool, whereas uh, more mature physicians who did not have that experience can often find it more to be a burden. But it's not so much documentation of the patient's note of their diagnosis and what they saw of the patient, it's actually sometimes you have to capture in certain fields that you've done certain pieces of work in order to have them captured for quality measures or for insurance purposes. Um, I happen to be fortunate to be at a setting where the electronic health record was heavily involved. Um, its design was heavily involved by a physician and so they interwove the capture of the quality measures into the clinical practice setting. So I don't have to do extra clicks, but very commonly a physician can document the entire encounter that they did with the patient, but yet have to go back and click on several other screens to redocument that they've satisfied quality measures. I think that as we go forward that more electronic health records will be able to streamline the two parts together so that they can capture at the point of care the work that's being done so that we don't have to do the extra work. It is a burden. Mm -hmm. It is a burden to the point that some people don't want to do their medical records while they're seeing the patient or just after. But can you imagine at the end of your day having to then close all of those notes and document. It may be me, but my memory is not that good. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I close every encounter after I've seen the patient, but I'm fortunate enough to have an electronic health record that streamlines the capture of quality measures within the note. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I know we hear these terrible stories of people going home and staying up till late at night um, documenting, and that's the kind of story that you just hate to hear, especially in the name of quality, because we know burnout that results from that is going to interfere with the, the you know, the way you work with your patients and with the rest of your team. So uh, we hope we, we'll get these things cleaned up. It looks like we're going up to another peak of COVID, but um, I just wanted to reflect back on um, the, you know, the the emergence of telemedicine as a major means of giving care in the last months. And um, how was that for you? And what do you think about the potential of it? What needs to happen to make it better? Yeah, that's a great question, Peggy, about telemedicine, telehealth. There was so much resistance up until about a year ago because people who were providing care were not necessarily part of the primary care physician's healthcare team. They were outside of that. And there was concern that all of the information was not available at the point of care. So what was the quality of care? There was concerns about whether or not it was done real time or whether it was done asynchronous. There were concerns about whether or not the person was in their own home or did they have to be in a special center? Well, one of the wonderful things that have come out of COVID is that we have very quickly overcome almost all of those barriers. We realize that it's important for the patient to start their telehealth visit at their house 
and not at a particular center. It's important that the person who's talking to them have access to their medical record and that they can do continuity of care. So me as a primary care physician, beginning my practice with this company all on telemedicine, it was very rough initially doing it by telephone. I couldn't see the people. They couldn't see me. It was hard to establish a relationship. But very quickly within two weeks, we began using the video apps with the um, visits. And when you see a person's face and you smile, that's the beginning of building a relationship. When I have access to their electronic health record, I know who they've been seeing, I know their diagnoses, I know their medications. When I have access to electronic prescribing so that they don't need to leave their home, I can then order the medications and their, um, their insurer can deliver it or some of the major pharmacies were actually delivering medicines. I have broken down so many barriers to quality of care, to patient access to care and being able to stay safe. So as we go forward with electronic prescribing, electronic consults, electronic visits that are all telehealth, we have gone leaps and bounds ahead of what we've done before. You know, one thing in particular I think was very good. When a patient was coming in to see you and they often had to wait, now they're waiting in their waiting room, in their own living room, <laughs> which is quality. They can make use of that time watching television or cooking. And so that decreases the stress of their encounter. Now that we have the ability for them to measure their blood sugar at home, to measure their blood pressure at home, even during the video visit, I can do more real-time monitoring and adjusting of care. With the quality of the video equipment, we've been able to diagnose conjunctivitis in their eyes, rashes. We can see how they're breathing to see if they're um, asthma, COPD, if they're having exacerbations, we can look at their legs and see if they have significant edema. So it has brought a lot of care directly into the home, those who have even limited transportation, or even those who have been homebound who we were not really seeing as often as we needed to before. A new thing that has come about is the ability to do electronic consults. And I did want to talk a little bit about that because we've long had a challenge with a primary care physician consulting their colleague in any specialty and getting that feedback back. The barriers are the consult going to the person, the patient being scheduled, the patient having the appointment, the consultant seeing the patient with the question that needs to be answered, and then them answering and sending the message back to me. And closing that referral loop has been a major problem within quality for a long time. However, with this advancements of COVID and telehealth, not only has it brought the patient in front of me a lot quicker, it has put me in contact with my specialty peers more seamlessly without the barriers of long waits for appointments, without co-pays. 
and it enhances my knowledge and ensures that the question I want to have asked gets answered and quickly delivered back to me. I'm able to dramatically improve the quality of care that I'm giving to my patients by having specialty consultants readily available to me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're describing a movement forward into a virtual care system that, uh, I mean, we just did a telehealth task force, as you know, uh, with with the Alliance for American Telemedicine Association and with the Alliance for Connected Care. And one of the big discussions was about what should be paid for a telehealth visit. And, you know, one comes to the, at least I start kind of believing in organized systems to begin with um, and realizing that in an organized system, telehealth can be used so much more flexibly than uh, if if you're worrying about, am I going to be able to bill for that? Am I going to get paid the same amount for it? Um, so there, it really is possible to kind of craft a whole system of care that's virtual and that's uh, actually superior and maybe more efficient than what we've been doing in the past. So it's uh, it's very interesting. Your patients, they're all part of Medicare Advantage plans. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and that's the, the beauty of it. Um, in the place that I practice, we exclusively see patients that are Medicare Advantage with, with three particular insurers that contract with us. So it's 100% capitated care, and we don't have to worry about um, doing co-pays or special payment per visit, not even for clinic visits, let alone tele- telehealth. But I noticed in certain areas, the ability to do telehealth even a year ago, two years ago, before COVID, was rapidly progressing because of competition. I really watched North Carolina. And in North Carolina, the fee-for-service market there, they had multiple players who began to see the value of having telehealth. And very quickly, many of the clinicians in practice across the different healthcare Um, organizations suddenly started offering telehealth. And so the discussion you're talking about payment for that and how will it be paid, that was a a concern of negotiating what the copay would be among those. Just recently saw a commercial where that's being advertised that you can now have video visits with your physician with no telehealth copay. And so we have gone so far forward, even in the fee-for-service arena, that the insurers are seeing the value of reducing the barriers of payment for the telehealth visits. But when you're not in fee, when you're not in a capitated system, a, a fee for service model, you still have to figure out the payment. Mm-hmm. You still have to reimburse the clinicians for their time. And, and that I'm not sure how that's going to be worked out, but it should not become a barrier to us being able to offer the service and improve quality. The physicians like it, the patients love it, it's better quality care, but we have to figure out the payment. If we have a full payment system, capitated system, such as where I'm in in ChinMed, GenCare, or as a Kaiser Permanente or other groups, those barriers are not there and you can move far forward. In fact, back in the early 2000s, when I was still practicing at Kaiser, 
I often would have telephone appointments to talk to my patients a week later to adjust a blood pressure medicine or their diabetes medicine. And that was, you know, almost almost 20 years ago mm-hmm. that we could have done that, but it wasn't a common thing. COVID has pushed us to make this common. Mm-hmm. It has pushed us to make sure that we become available and accessible and safe for our patients. Yeah. So, I mean, what I've heard anecdotally is that a lot of places are trying to move back to the old way, um, you know, uh, now that, well, I mean, I think, as I said, we're, we're not done with COVID yet, so I'm not sure that's going to happen. But um, so have you continued to do a lot of telehealth visits uh, in your practice? Remember, I met all of these people only through telehealth. And so yeah. I'm seeing them from the head up. There is more to the body than a head up. And so back in June, I started doing one day a week in the clinic and bringing patients in and doing their complete exam so I can get to know them. And it's been a wonderful experience to realize that the top of the face may look nothing like the rest of the body (laughs) and that (laughs) you really have to uh, do a full exam at least once on a person. And I'm old school. I actually do have people get completely undressed and examine the entire body. And I know that that's not something you can really do in telehealth. Right. And so it is an adjunct. Telehealth is an adjunct to total care. It is not in place of total care. Yeah. There are patients who are homebound or bedbound that you cannot really do an adequate exam if you're only doing telehealth. So now that we have gone back to opening up our facilities on a limited basis, bringing in some patients, we have to remind the patients and show the value of coming back out into the clinic. And so we are doing um, extra special care, especially examining them, which which is what they want um, to show the value of coming in. But I think rather than the model of every month having the patient come into the clinic to build the relationship, um, to make sure that we're keeping them safe and healthy, it's gone to two months of video, one month of coming in. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what about immunizations? This is something, uh, you know, I think people are fretting about dual pandemic, you know, flu shots um, being, the, the rate of flu shots being given is is down. And childhood immunizations, I know that's not your population, but we certainly don't want a measles uh, epidemic going on. Uh, while we're still dealing with COVID. So um, what have you all done? Are, are people willing to come to the clinics or where do you send them to get their flu shots and make sure that they're getting them? So in this new time of COVID where we have both flu and COVID going on at the same time, drive by flu shots. Ah. To our patients, we encourage everyone to get a flu shot mm-hmm. and people want them. And so what we have devised is, is, is a way that they come through the parking lot. We have stands set up. They just roll down the <laughs> roll down the window. We wow. touch on the keypad, ask the questionnaire information. They can sign with their finger and go in and get their injections. So drive-by flu shots is very, very common during this time of COVID. Very interesting. For anyone who has to come into the building, yes, we give them that, that flu shot. But um, really, the, 
drive-by flu shots have been around for a couple of years. It became more popular last year. It is definitely the main way people are doing it this year. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so let's talk about end of life because you're taking care of patients at the end of their lives. Is that a conversation that you initiate to patients initiated under what circumstances? I, I just wonder like how much is that a part of your relationship with your patients? Well, Peggy, this is an area that I'm very passionate about. And I believe that end of life discussions should be as common as asking patients about their allergies. Mm-hmm. So as I began my practice earlier this year, during COVID, over the phone or over televideo, as I mentioned before, I start with asking them a few questions about themselves, but I lead right in from what do you do for physical activity to what prior surgeries have you had and what medications. And after I've asked them those questions, they know that I care for them as a person. So I go right into, so if something were to happen to you and you cannot speak for yourself, who is the person you want me to go to to answer for you? And they'll almost always, 90% of the time, can come up with a name of a person they want to go to. And so then I ask them, so have you given any thought that if something were to happen and your heart stopped beating, it was not beating, do you want us to do CPR, press on your chest to get it going again? If you could not breathe at all, would you want us to put you on a breathing machine to keep you going? If you were at the end stage of a disease, you were not going to recover. And the only thing keeping you going was medical treatment that may cause some pain and suffering. Would you want to continue doing that? If you had advanced dementia or a severe stroke and had trouble swallowing, should I still plan to have you fed with a spoon, even though you choke, or should we put in a feeding tube? When I ask those questions, the patient's know that I've just gotten to know them. This is another part of their personal wishes. And more than 90% of the time on this first phone call, they answer them. Mm. Any of them who are hesitant about any of the questions, I say, this is just something to think about. This is something to talk to about that per- with that person you told me to ask because it's so more important that they honor your wishes. We all know those situations of families down in the waiting room fighting. Should we stop the tube? Should we stop the the treatment or not? And it really fractures families. But this is a way, is a gift that you can give to your family by making a decision in advance. Then all they have to do is follow mom's wishes. So I believe that advanced directives are something to talk about at the beginning and at any time. And I make it as part of a casual conversation. And for the patients who don't have answers right away, I tell them, don't worry about it. Let's talk about it again another time. Or if they had all the answers, I say, we'll just discuss this every year because you may change your mind and that's perfectly okay. Because in this time of COVID, 
I've lost almost 10 patients in the last four months. I mentioned that I'm caring for a population that's very frail and very sick. And of those patients, all but two have died at home. They've died at home, mostly on hospice with, the, with their family around them. Only two had we not gotten advanced directives done in advance so that they um, unfortunately died in the hospital. And the closure of having had those discussions in advance gives such peace to the family. Thank you, that's a very profound scope. Um, I think that, you know, not whether it's a time of COVID or telemedicine or just doing quality patient care, there are some caveats that a physician should plan to do. And number one, I'd say is we need to listen to the patient. And I know we've heard that many times, but when you combine that with the motivational interviewing or reflecting back what they said, you can take the time to hear them out, reflect back so that they know that you heard them and move forward. It's important to ask their goals and preferences. And we just use that example of advanced directives. That's very important. It's important to respect their wishes and decisions. I do have patients who said, I will never do cancer screening. My husband went through cancer for prostate cancer. It was very miserable. I did not like the experience. If I have something, I don't have a problem with dying from it. So I put in their chart under healthcare maintenance, declines, mammograms, colon cancer screening, or flu shots, whatever they say. And I respect their opinion. Listen, I am not trying to alienate them. I want them to know that they can tell me anything and that I'll respect their opinion. We need to be sure that we're aligning our treatment plans with the care goals. Um, I had a patient who was in her 60s and she started having bleeding, uh, postmenopausal bleeding. And as we did the workup, we found that she really needed to have surgery. Maybe it's cancer. But as we talk about that, she's also afraid of COVID. And so we've discussed when to do the procedure. So I don't want to say to her, well, you must have it done now, or I'm worried about my liability. No, I talked to her about her wishes, and I aligned my care plan based on the patient's wishes, documenting that we we're discussing this and when she makes her decisions. Another caveat I think is <laughs> physicians have a hard time with this is really speaking in plain language. You know, um, we like to say hypertension. It's high blood pressure. <laughs> Sometimes they may not understand um, what high lipids are or cholesterol. So we have to talk about things in terms that they truly understand and be sensitive when they have trouble reading. I have a patient who saw the emergency, he went in the emergency room and he was given some papers to follow up with. And we were talking on the phone just last evening and I asked him, I said, can you um, tell me what it says so I'll know who to send it to? He said, well, can I bring him past the office? Sure you can. Bring him tomorrow so that I can look at him and make sure you're going to the right person. He can't read. Yeah. This is what didn't come out another way. 
and we have been interacting some time. So speaking in plain language and understanding literacy challenges and especially health literacy is really important um, things that uh, we need to do. Lastly, we need to be accountable. So by the end of the day, I've made sure that I've returned all patient calls, that I see them back or call them back when I say that I'm gonna call them back. And that at the end of every visit, I thank them for having time for me. This is when we're gonna to get together again and ABC are the things we're gonna address next time. And do they have other questions? So by holding ourselves accountable and building that relationship with them, I think it makes it a better environment to ensure that we're finding things early, detecting those early diseases and conditions so that the patient's not afraid to go through and hold your hand with hold their hand with you as you as they go through these challenges of diagnoses and diseases and treatment and that they have a confidant as their physician going forward. I love clinical practice. You know, you are such a paragon of a, a primary care practitioner uh, that uh, I, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion about the future of primary care and, um, you know, terrible things happened in COVID with a lot of smaller primary care practices that weren't prepared to transition to telemedicine and so forth. So um, I hope that part of your agenda uh, is to kind of help us identify this future of primary care and make sure we don't lose this most important part of the relationship between the, the healthcare system and the person. Um, and I can't think of a better one than you. So I wish you were lived near me so I could you could be my doctor. <laughs> except I'm not on Medicare Advantage. But thank you so much. Um, it, it really is so interesting to listen to you. And um, I also hope you're teaching in a medical school somewhere. So, Yes, I, I believe in mentoring. I've always yes. had mentors myself. And whether it's the medical student, resident, fellowship level, or right. practicing physicians, I believe in, in mentoring. Thank you so much. And that does it for this episode of Inside Healthcare. Before you go, check out NCQA's Quality Innovation Series, where we feature clinicians discussing primary care and utilizing telehealth during this time of COVID-19, and much more. You can find out more information at ncqa.org backslash QI series. Thanks again for joining us. We will see you again soon. Take care. Music